You are listening to the Happier at Work podcast, and I'm your host, Aoife O'Brien. This is the podcast for HR and business leaders. We talk about things like leadership, well-being at work, diversity and inclusion, and the future of work. Groups have a double agenda. They have a task to perform and they have to learn how to be a group. And we typically put all our energy into the task performance and give people no help or training in how to be a group. Anyone who has an interest in psychology, in sociology, or indeed in leadership is really going to get a lot and thoroughly enjoy today's episode of the podcast. It's the kind of episodes that you would never think would happen in a million years. Uh, I'm absolutely delighted to share with you that today's guests, guests plural, are Peter and Edgar Shine. Now, as I mentioned, anyone who has an interest in, in psychology, in sociology, in leadership, those names probably do mean a lot to you. For those who haven't heard those names mentioned before, I'm going to do an introduction to the background of both of these wonderful gentlemen, a father and son duo. When I shared the news that I had recorded this podcast with my DCU colleagues, the people who I did my master's with for the couple of years uh, until we graduated last year, they all said, what an absolute legend. They, they were speaking in particular of Edgar Schein, who, if anyone has, has done a master's or done any sort of research into psychology or leadership, he's certainly a name that comes up again. And, uh, you know, people could definitely resonate with that fact that his name comes up again and again in, in the research papers. Now, one in particular was currently reading uh, Edgar and Peter's book as well. So I just thought that was quite interesting in itself. Edgar Schein goes by Ed and he is Professor Emeritus of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, that's MIT Sloan School of Management. He has consulted and published extensively Organizational Psychology, the third edition in 1980, Process Consultation Revisited, 1999, Career Anchors, fourth edition with John Van Manen in 2013. And I know certainly Career Anchors is something that I can recall researching when I was doing my master's for sure. Uh, Organizational Culture and Leadership, the Corporate Culture Survival Guide, as well as a cultural analysis of Singapore's economic miracle in 1996. Digital Equipment Corp's Rise and Fall, DEC is dead, long live DEC in 2003. In 2009, he published Helping, followed in 2013 by Humble Inquiry or Humble Inquiry, depending, and you'll hear the kind of differences within that as as we speak on the podcast. And that won a 2013 Book of the Year Award from the University of San Diego, followed by Humble Consulting in 2016. And I know certainly I have uh, read or rather listened to Humble Consulting uh, quite recently and it's really enlightening, a completely different approach to consulting, which is really refreshing. Ed and his son Peter, 
who is also on today's podcast, co-founded the Organizational Culture and Leadership Leadership Institute, the OCLI.org, in 2015. Their first work together was the fifth edition of Organizational Culture and Leadership and was published in 2016. In 2018, Ed and Peter published Humble Leadership, which won the Nautilus Book Awards Silver Medal. And in 2019, they published Culture and Change and Leadership, the Corporate Culture Survival Guide, third edition. Ed and Peter have just completed their fourth collaboration, which is the upcoming second edition of Humble Inquiry this year. Ed received a BA degrees from University of Chicago and Stanford and his PhD in social psychology from Harvard University. He is the 2009 recipient of the Distinguished Scholar Practitioner Award of the Academy of Management, the 2012 recipient of the Lifetime Achievement Award from the International Leadership Association the 2015 Lifetime Achievement Award in Organisation Development from the International OD Network. So many accolades, absolutely amazing stuff. His son, Peter Shine, is the co-founder and COO of the OCLI.org in Menlo Park, California. He provides counsel to senior management on organisational development challenges facing private and public sector entities worldwide. He is a co-author of Culture and Change and Leadership, the Corporate Culture Survival Guide, third edition, Humble Leadership 2018, and a contributing author to the fifth edition of Organisational Culture and Leadership in 2016. Peter's work draws on 30 years of industry experience in marketing and corporate development at technology pioneers, including Apple, SGI, Sun Microsystems, and numerous internet startups. Through these experiences, developing strategies for organic and inorganic growth, Peter brought a keen focus on the underlying organisational development challenges that growth engenders in an innovation-driven enterprises. Peter was educated at Stanford University, getting a BA in social anthropology, Northwestern University, where he got the Kellogg MBA, and USC Marshall School of Business, where he got the HCEO certificate in 2017. That's enough of me doing an introduction to the background, let's dive right into the conversation. And as always, I will be doing a wrap up, a summary at the end. So stay tuned for that. And I'd love for you to get involved in the conversation as always over on LinkedIn. Ed and Peter Shine, you are so, so welcome to the Happier at Work podcast. Now, you will have heard a brief introduction from me, but in your own words, would you like, first of all, Ed, to introduce yourself a little bit about your history, your background and how, where you are today? And then, Peter, you can follow on with the kind of a, the more recent uh, collaboration. Sure. Very happy to be here and very happy to tell you a little about myself. <laughs> uh, I grew up in an academic family. My father was a professor of physics. It took me three full college years before I figured out that I couldn't do physics and had to find something else. (laughs) And somehow psychology appealed. So I became a social psychologist, very serious, uh, spent a year at Stanford and then got a PhD at, uh, at Harvard. And that was significant because Harvard had at that time brought together psychology, sociology, and anthropology. So my launching into this academic career was very broad. 
uh, broad social science base. But then, of course, I, I got seduced. Instead of going into a department and being a proper professor, uh, a man by the name of Douglas McGregor, whose name many of you will know because of his famous theory X, theory Y, mm. uh, do people really want to work or don't they? <laughs> uh, he was at MIT when I was finishing my PhD and said, instead of wasting your time teaching psychology to undergraduate psych students, why don't you come to the Sloan School this newly created advanced uh, MBA and uh, PhD program and see if you can apply social psychology to managers. Well, I said, well, that sounds tempting because I love Cambridge and wanted to stay there. And so I asked him, so what should I teach? And he smiled. He said, I'm not going to tell you, we're hiring you to figure out <laughs> what managers need from social psychology. So no I pressure. started scratch, and that was very good for me because I found out right away that uh, teaching in an applied setting and teaching managers, particularly the MBAs, that was a lost cause because they came to business school to learn finance and economics and marketing. And so they, they uh, actually uh, were polite, but they didn't learn anything. Mm. When I got involved with middle-level executives and when I learned to do something in consulting, then I realized how suddenly... The middle-level executives, they wanted everything I knew because they said, why didn't you guys teach us that when we were MBAs? And I said, we did. You just <laughs> didn't realize that your problems were going to be people problems. Mm -hmm. So then I, over the many years, wandered through uh, career research, uh, learned how to consult, <clears throat> wrote a very important little book called Process Consultation because I soon learned that how we consult it has very little in common with the traditional formal consulting firms. And so I became more of a scholar practitioner developing uh, my own skills and how to work with organizations and then when I retired from MIT, figured out, well, now what next? And uh, I had, after my wife died in 2008, I had to go get near one of my kids, and Peter was a logical choice, so I came out uh, to be with him, not realizing <clears throat> that that would start a fourth career, <laughs> namely this organizational uh, culture and learning institute where we would figure out how to put our two sets of interests together and see what what that would produce in the way of joint writing. And I'll just close with saying that has been a marvelous positive experience. We've now co-authored four books and I'm just delighted with where it has all gone. Brilliant. Yeah. yeah, that's great. 
Um, and and w- what you just saw Ed do there was create a new book title uh, because the, the book is the Organizational Culture and Leadership textbook and the Organizational Culture and Leadership Institute is, is, is Ed's and my partnership. But Ed called it Organizational Culture and Learning, which is that, okay, so that's, uh, we, we now know <laughs> the future. We just have to get there. <laughs> the, the, the new book um, title, I love it. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, well, so I, I just the, the quick bit of background on me that, that's, that's, that's interesting in a way is that I sort of went through my own uh, similar uh, conversion experience where I went to Stanford thinking that I was going to do psychology as well as an undergrad. And this is a few years after the infamous Stanford prison experiment. So, of course, the psychology department was very prominent, uh, a little controversial. But um, uh, at any rate, I kind of had the, the same sort of epiphany that maybe that Ed did, that, that just psychology isn't really enough. So the, the, the broadest, the, the, what's sort of often referred to as sort of the, the mother of the social scientists, um, or social sciences is anthropology. It's sort of the most yeah. comprehensive. So um, I found social anthropology as the way to kind of um, spread my degrees of freedom a little bit. Um, loved it, but ended up going to business school and having a 30-year career in Silicon Valley. And, um, but at the same time, realizing that for all the interest in technology and um, sort of some of the technical aspects of work in Silicon Valley, I found myself, my heart was sort of drawing me to these, uh, you know, human issues in big organizations. I was mm-hmm. doing mergers and acquisitions. And sure, you could make the financial and technical fit work, but the bigger issue was always would the people fit happen? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it's all about integration. Um, I mean, at least for the, for some microsystems where I work, some companies will do it just as a, you know, financial accretion kind of exercise. But but we we were a people oriented, you know, technically oriented company that really wanted to make sure that we were going to bring engineers on. They would work with the existing engineers and so on. And so um, but I really found that being the, the uh, center of gravity for me. So it was very easy. Then a few years after that uh, career and in, in Silicon Valley to sort of to have some ideas that I wanted to work on uh, with Ed. We started to talk about books that we could write, and and really the the first major effort in that regard was was our book Humble Leadership. But you know, it, it, since the forming of the Organizational Culture and Leadership Institute, we've done four book projects together and a number of consulting projects. And so here we are talking about the second edition of Humble Inquiry. Um, but really a lot, it's, there's a through line with all of the books. So um, I suspect that uh, we'll, we'll talk about the, the body of work as much as just that one book. Yeah, no, that sounds really great. Um, I was going to say, I mean, there's there's so much that I could pick up on there. And I, in particular, and longtime listeners of the podcast would know this idea of would the people fit happen? Like just that simple question, I think would be great. And maybe we come back to it. Um, and for listeners as well, I may, I just warn in advance, I may switch between saying humble inquiry, which I think is the pronunciation that you would use in the US versus humble inquiry, which is what I would say being in Ireland. Um, but we're here to talk about the second edition of that book. So um, do you want to talk to me, whoever wants to go first, like what is what is the book about? 
I'll go first because I think the history of the book is itself interesting. Uh, when I came out here uh, uh, in 2011, I was working on autobiography and my academic interest was really to pull together all of everything I knew about helping. Mm. Because the difference between just being a scholar or being a scholar practitioner is the scholar just wants to describe stuff. The scholar practitioner wants to apply it. And so I read a book called Helping, which I think is actually a very good book. It hasn't uh, caught on quite that way. But in the last chapter of that book, I describe different ways one builds the helping relationship. And one of the chapter titles there is Humble Inquiry. And it was the publisher who said, someday you've got to write a book by that title, because that's a dynamite title. And I said, go away. I've just written the book. I don't, I don't <laughs> want to have anything to do with that. Yeah. But remind me from time to time. Mm. And then what happened, uh, he did, the publisher did remind me, and I kept saying no until one day I was looking at some interesting mushrooms that were growing outside this uh, big apartment facility where I live. And a little old lady with her dog marched up to me and with her long pointed finger said, those are poisonous, you know. And so I'm looking up at her saying, you know, what what's going on? What, what do you? And I said, yes, I know. And she pointed her finger at me again and said, they can kill you, you know. Well, that turns out to be wrong because I knew about mushrooms. And at that point, I found myself very offended. Who was this person to march up to me and tell me? about something that I knew a lot about. I knew about mushrooms. And that triggered the book. I said, all right, now I'm ready to write that <laughs> book because I'm sick and tired. At dinner, all the time, people were always telling each other stuff. Mm. So the real motive was to attack the culture of tell. Mm. And create a foundation for a culture of building relationships through inquiry. And that's really how the book got started. And Peter can talk a little bit about how the second edition evolved. But I thought it was important that this didn't just come out of my head. This was partly the interaction mm. with this culture that's very much the U.S. culture. We're always telling each other stuff and thinking that that's the way to be. Yeah, and so just to comment, as, as Ed mentioned on the second edition, one of the things that really um, sort of was a little internal motivation was that um, I think the U.S. and arguably the world um, has gone through this period over the last, you know, five, ten years of, um, you know, for lack of a better term, uh, trying to reconcile different fact universes. Um, so, uh, you know, 
early in the Trump presidency, there was a reference made by one of the press people to, well, alternative, we're, we're, we're talking about alternative facts. And this idea that, that you have a set of um, beliefs and facts over here and a set of beliefs and alternative facts over here. And the truth ends up being both or neither. <laughs> and um, so part of the whole motivation around uh, humble inquiry is, you know, in, at work, we really have to get to what's a collective sense of what's mm -hmm. going on. And to tell what we know and shape perception just by telling people what we know rather than drawing people out mm. and sort of creating a, a collective sense of what's going on uh, is a good way to make bad decisions. You know, frame it around what you believe and what you know, and let somebody else silently frame what they believe and what they know around their alternative facts. And then you end up with conflicts and poor decisions. Yeah. So what we're, what we're trying to get at is, um, uh, in order to, you know, get to that deeper sense of what's going on, you have to build open and trusting relationships with the people that you work with. Yeah. Um, and you have to get them to tell you what's on their mind. Yeah. Yeah. If you're the leader. You, you, you benefit <laughs> by knowing what's on their mind. Um, and you have to invest the time and the, and the energy and the attitude at work to draw out what people know. You're still the leader. You're still going to be responsible for making the decisions, but you can make the decisions in a more informed, collective, consensus-based way. Those are going to, you know, down the road, you know, your work as a body of the decisions you've made. Well, you're going to end up with a better body because you end up with better decisions. Yeah, brilliant. Love that approach. Um, something I made note of then is it is it kind of like this idea of being helpful versus being right. So, so many people are so hung up on being right and having all the answers that they actually neglect to be helpful to other people. Let me comment on that around the word humble. How did, uh, how did humble get into the title? Because it's actually both as a consultant and later as a writer and helping, I realize that the most important thing is to, in the context of talking to someone else, to be here and now humble, here and now humble. I don't think I'm a particularly humble person normally, but if I'm with a client or if I'm trying to build a relationship, at that point in the relationship, I have to recognize that I don't know everything, that I'm curious about the other person, that I have to help them formulate the problem in ways that make sense, that together we have to figure out what is reality because, as Peter said, neither one of us starts out knowing it. So, very important point is not to confuse the word humble with the trait of humility. 
Okay. Has nothing to do. In our leadership book, we have all kinds of very arrogant people who are humble leaders because they know that when it comes to decision-making and working with others, at that point, you have to become skillful in listening and really paying attention. And that is the here and now humility Mm. that we emphasize. It's a really great distinction. Thank you. Thanks for making that. And I'd just like to add to, to your idea of being right versus helping. Um, the other thing that we introduced was a, a reference to a futurist friend of ours, Bob Johansson at the Institute for the Future, who talks about leaders in the future needing to know the difference and make the right choices around um, certainty versus clarity. So if you're if you become certain of something, you've convinced yourself um, and, uh, you know, I've heard of, heard it referred to as the conceit of certainty um, versus trying to gain enough clarity of what's really going on, because the world is so complicated and it's not getting any simpler mm. um, that. What you really need is clarity and what's going to get in your way is certainty. I mean, you might, you might be lucky, you, yeah. right? You might be certain of something and, you know, maybe 10% of the time you're right. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. if you're, if you're opting for your biggest goal is clarity, which means assimilating more information and having a vision for where you want to go, but the clarity, um, allows you to to uh, see more, have a sort of a, a deeper depth of field um, on that on that vision. Clarity is a is ultimately a more important goal than certainty. Um, and, and that's sort of again, that's kind of uh, it, it is a little bit of an indictment of the the sort of you know, call it the the 1980s model of sort of the bold entrepreneur or the bold financier who um, is driven and, um, you know, brave and arrogant and individualistic. Yeah. Um, who pursues something until uh, until they get there and they might fail all along the way, but they're so driven and they, well, you know, that is one model, and there were lots of success stories of that that sort of heroic leader. But um, I think the idea around clarity is that, um, yeah, you're going to navigate a very, um, uh, you, you know, sort of lots of twists and bends along the way. Mm-hmm. But maintaining that clarity um, and maintaining what, what Ed described as that here and now humility in order to assimilate more information rather than just ignoring stuff and pursuing your path. Yeah. Um, I think that's, that's, the, that's the distinction that we really like to try to make. Yeah, yeah, I really like that. And, I, you know, we, we trigger each other, so I have something more to say. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. I love it. So the... the the other point about humble inquiry is that people get confused by by not understanding that the definition really is asking questions to which you do not know the answer. Yeah. 
because there are lots of ways of asking questions. There are rhetorical questions. There are questions of diagnosis, of why this. And so we make quite a point initially of saying humble inquiry is a particular skill because that you first of all have to figure out what it is I don't know <laughs> and not just leap in with a whole bunch of questions where I think I already have the answer and access my curiosity and access my ignorance, mm. which turns out to be, as we're now working with a couple of organizations, we think we all know how to do that because we do that in our friendship relationships or when we're truly trying to build a new relationship. But when we go to the workplace, we often sort of run dry on how do I do that at work where I'm always used to asking the rhetorical question where I already think I know the answer. Yeah. And you're asking me to do something different Yes, something very different. And in some cases, we've gotten involved then in actually training people how to learn how to be ignorant yeah. and ask questions from what they don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rather than, well, I know the answer to this, or you assume that you know the answer to something exactly. and therefore therefore you think you know what the answer should be. It's it's almost like a coaching approach where you're going in with genuine curiosity and genuine ignorance as to what the what the reality is for the person that you're asking. Unless you're talking about executive coaching, which if you want to get me started on that, that's executive <laughs> that, coaching. That can be another podcast where you do episode. know the answer and you're trying to indoctrinate the person into fitting in. <laughs> you're, so, you're trying to uh, get the right answer from them, let's say. <laughs> and teaching them how to fit in. So I have a real problem with the word coaching. If, as so many people implicitly are talking about executive coaching rather than coaching a client who's paying for his or her own uh, development. I see, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm, let's, take, let's say I'm referring to the latter kind as opposed to the former kind. Um, <laughs> But brilliant. I, I mean, there's so much to dive into. There's so, there's so many questions I have around this. And I suppose the first one that springs to mind is, does it rely on the senior leaders to um, to develop this type of attitude, let's say, in, in an organisation? So does it have to come from the top? I think so, absolutely, because it has to be not only role modelled, but if the CEO develops that relationship with her direct reports, let's say, it, it has to then be supplemented by that same CEO saying, and now I'm going to start measuring each of you on the degree to which you do that with your direct reports. Mm -hmm. So it both role modeling and creating the incentives for the next layer to do it so that that next layer will in turn uh, role model and create the incentives. 
Yeah. The re- and the reason I asked that question was because I always had the assumption that it would have to come from the top. But in a recent conversation that I had, uh, someone was explaining that it didn't necessarily. And and what I'm referring to specifically is psychological safety. And maybe we can talk a little bit about that and what that means for this um, this process or this attitude or, 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 or having this sense of curiosity. And in the conversation that I had about psychological safety, I always was of the opinion that it, it, the psycholo- creating a culture of psych- psychological safety had to come from the top. But in this conversation, I was challenged about that and, and said, well, actually, as an individual, you can take responsibility for how how you show up in the organisation and, and how you approach your own psychological safety. So I'd be curious to, to get your thoughts on, on the role that psychological safety plays in this uh, I mean, I, I guess I will. I'll take a first stab at that, and and it and it sort of touches on that idea of how uh, culture works and how culture exists in an organization. And the the key um, there is really how an organization um, learns collectively, and then sort of institutionalizes that learning. And that's one of the dimensions that we often will refer to as culture. It's things that that have become successful because they were challenged in some way and learned how to react to that external challenge and then sort of organize internally to adapt to that external challenge. And so that idea of learning um, as a group is, is, is so important. And Um, So if you have a part of the organization that uh, becomes particularly successful um, because they learned how to adapt or they learned how to produce a product in a better way that was more better fit to their market um, or more profitable or something. And then you learn that the way they did that is they had a much better sort of substrate of psychological safety that allowed them to be more effective. Um, They may have been just as efficient, but in fact, they were more effective because they were doing a better job of um, keeping everybody real and keeping everybody involved and letting people, you know, share what they knew. Um, And what's interesting to us about that is I've described something sort of generically um, but that's also one way of describing what Google learned when they did their project Aristotle, mm. that they looked for successful engineering teams across the organization. And no surprise, Google's very good at studying itself. They're very good at studying a lot of things, but they're very good at studying itself. And, um, you know, they thought they were going to find that they were using tools in a different way or they were you know, had some creative way of organizing their workflows or whatever. But the one thing that they found in that project, Aristotle, which has been written up many times, was that um, there was that common substrate of psychological safety um, in the the sort of um, more successful teams, relatively Mm -hmm. more successful teams than others. And so um, we're describing something generically how I started but this has been true in practice. Yeah. And, um, but I guess the point being, there's no reason why it can't be sort of middle out, <laughs> right? Okay. It doesn't have to be top down. 
Yeah. Um, uh, because if, if you're the CEO of an organization that sees one group that's way outperforming others and you discover that the way that group learned to be more successful was because of this establishing this substrate of psychological safety, mm-hmm. then that's going to send a message, right, to senior leadership to adapt in that direction, to try to move other teams in that direction, to try mm-hmm. to um, maybe even move your relationship with your board in that direction. Yeah. So yeah. I, I think it's both. It, you yeah. Know, Love that. Um, you know, culture tends to be historically tends to be a top down thing. Yeah. But um, cultural evolution happens in all, in, in all directions. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Anything to add to that, Ed? Yes. I, I would add that we, we do kind of say to people, uh, you know, take a chance, speak up. Mm. Uh, and, I think we address that in the book by saying that's all well and good, but we have lots and lots of evidence, particularly in the safety field, where people do speak up and the accident happens anyway. Okay. And so the question is, how can that be that that we have whistleblowers, we have all kinds of people who express extraordinary courage and yet our reward systems punish whistleblowers. They, they generally are treated very badly. Mm-hmm. And what I observed myself in, uh, in a utility where electrical workers would see problems down in, in, the, uh, in the mechanics and they would tell their boss and the boss would say, thank you very much, I'll triage it. And the boss would imply, you know, I got enough on my plate. Don't bother me with your extra stuff. Yeah. And so the, the courage is one thing to speak up. But what really determines it and why I think both Peter and I think it has to start at the top is the actual reward system that operates. Mm. And in lots of organizations, there are courageous people, but the reward system is productivity, time, schedule. Those take the priority over your interesting new idea or that point you're trying to make about this isn't safe. Yeah. 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 Really interesting. You know what? The organization shows what it values by by what kind of behavior it rewards. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And in terms of moving towards, and I'm I'm trying to think of how to describe it. Is it is it describing it as like a culture of humble inquiry, or like how would you describe it? And what what are the steps? needed in order to to make the transformation you know i i think we should um if it's all right if i go back and talk about um the other kind of important dimension of all this which is of relationships. course yeah yeah um because one thing that we were starting to get at um a few minutes ago is you know i i started thinking about the contrast that we made I Ed first started making this contrast in the humble consulting book and basically we've <laughs> we've 
tried to get this thread into every book that we've written since, which is to be very intentional about the kinds of relationships that you try to establish at work. And the, the, the critical contrast is between what we describe as level one relationships, which are inherently transactional. You, you have a relationship, you have expectations of each other, but you're staying in your role, you're maintaining professional distance, you're, um, you know, accepting and, and handing off, um, and you're sort of, you're participating in a well-defined machine-like workflow. Yeah. And it's, and it's defined around those roles and those job descriptions. And um, that, you know, that works in certain kinds of industries. And our argument in humble leadership and in humble, in, in humble inquiry, the second edition, is that the world's too complicated for that, um, that we're, we're past that. that yeah. Um, we're not, we're not, we're not machines. Yeah. We're not assembly lines. Yeah. We're not, um, you know, financial, uh, transactional engines. We are, um, you know, the most of the world of work is much more complicated than that. We, we use the VUCA term, you know, yeah. volatile, um, uncertain, uncertain, complex and ambiguous. Um, you know, I think that's generally how people experience their work and the pandemic has sort of amplified that. Mm. Um, and, uh, so, you know, while level one transactional relationships at work and a culture built around that might've, might've worked just fine 50 years ago. Um, we are making the argument that we need to develop level two relationships which are whole person to whole person relationships Yeah, where you do go out of your way um, through a process of humbly inquiring and honestly humbly sharing because it's a, it's a, it's a two way relationship um, and sharing and inquiry go together in building that again, what we refer to as a level two relationships. Um, we, you, we, we sort of grudgingly decided to adopt this term personizing um, because it's different than personalizing, yeah. right? Personalizing is like you have personalized HR stack for every individual. That's one thing. That's great. But personizing is this idea that you are trying to develop a whole relationship with a whole person mm. because you need to tell each other what's really going on. It can't yeah. just be about the transaction between boss and subordinate or between peer and peer. It has to be more than that because the world's too complicated to just keep to those, you know, professionally distant, you know, I'm going to only tell you what you need yeah. because that's how our relationship has been defined. And that's how it conforms with our job descriptions. That's not enough anymore. Yeah. So yeah. Um, uh, I, I think what we're, we're getting at with um, the, idea of humble inquiry as a way of, a, of, of building those level to open trusting relationships is that um, that has uh, an important influence on, on the culture in the organization. Mm. Um, but, the, you know, people have to be willing to do it. And, you know, our argument would be that if you, if your goal is to be adaptive and innovative 
Well, <laughs> don't try to build that spirit in an organization by just staying in your lanes, sticking to your roles, adhering to your job descriptions. Yeah. Because you need to do more to out innovate very, you know, innovative competitors. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so this is where we sort of see these all of these through lines between um uh humble inquiry that leads to the idea of level two relationships, adaptive, resilient relationships, um, and evolving what we would describe as the social culture within an organization. Well, or within a work group or a division or an organization at whole. Mm. Um, so uh, that's a lot, but that's, that's the way that we would try to sort of paint the picture of how these these puzzle pieces are all put together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think the relationships at work are really, really important. And you're so right in what you say that like it's it's gone beyond just transactional. I think people would agree that you spend so much time at work that it's you don't just want to have that transactional relationship with the other people that you work with as well. You want to have that more personal relationship with other people and to understand what's going on for them as well and being able right. to share your full self at work. Right. It's I mean, it, this this is about being happier at work, right? Well, it would be exactly. our, our proposition that um, if you do have those person-to-person connections, um, the you might be working on a really tough project that's really bogging you down, but mm. those personal connections um, are what make you happier at work, even Definitely. if the work is really tough. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 100% agree. Um, and I, I suppose before we get on to the steps, maybe like... With the organizations that you've worked with, what are the reasons that people aren't doing this already? You know, what are some of the blocks that exist from moving towards this this type of uh, relationship building? Well, the major block that I see is the uh, the fact that the occupational culture of management, okay. how managers learn to manage. <clears throat> is a culture of tell and give orders. And I don't think the business schools or the books have abandoned that model. Okay, interesting. You don't find in the model of management things like inquire, build relationships, mentor. Those are all extras. Get the job done is the <laughs> yeah. primary one. Yeah. And just to add to what Peter said, the two things that are missing, to be very precise, in a complex world, the boss issues a complex order. Mm. In a level one relationship, the subordinate doesn't quite get it, but knows that the boss is busy. So the subordinate says to herself, well, I'll do my best. and I hope to God I, I do it right but makes mistakes, bad decisions. That's problem one. Problem two, the boss says, here's what we should do, and the subordinate knows that there is a better way. But there is no incentive in that professional distance for the subordinate to speak up. Yeah. Well, if the boss wants to do it that way, fine. She's the boss. So... 
it's about feeling better. It's about happier employees. But I hate to lose that it's ultimately pragmatically necessary. Yeah. It's not about happier. It's about necessary. Mm. And the happier comes about as a consequence of being treated as a full adult, of the professional distance being collapsed. Yeah. So that's an important reminder. It's not about being nicer, which a lot of people read the book and say, oh, I got to be nicer (laughs) to my people. (laughs) Wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not going to get you there. Well, and, and one of the key points there is that humans are have have really good, you know, fake radars, right? We we know when something's not genuine. Mm. You know, that's why you know vulnerability and authenticity get talked about so much around yeah. organizations because people really understand that. People read people very well, and so if somebody's being inauthentic, um, and and concealing vulnerability, people see it right away. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's obvious. And then, you know, then we have, you know, Dilbert cartoons, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, about, you know, all of these sort of like horribly common dysfunctions at work because yeah. <laughs> of, you know, uh, people being on, inauthentic with each other. Yeah, absolutely. And concealing information from each other. Yeah. Well, you yeah. know, the, it raises an important point, too, to what Ed was saying that, um, um, we've found that 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 um, one of the places that really takes a great interest in in the humble inquiry idea is in healthcare. Okay. And um, you know there are any number of reasons, but at, at some level, it's because healthcare is generally typically dealing with life and death. Yes, of course. And yeah. So um, concealing information or even sharing information um, or, or failing to share information because you didn't feel psychologically safe. Mm. You weren't willfully concealing information, but the you weren't handed the mic yeah. to, to say what you saw and what was going on. I, I think healthcare institutions um, who are measured on quality and are always striving to improve really get the importance of that. Yeah. And um, there's no reason why the same shouldn't be true in a software enterprise, except that generally in a software enterprises, we're not dealing with life and death. It's not like you are dealing so. with quality. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, uh, it becomes it becomes critically important, I suppose, when you're talking life and death versus, you know, like you're saying in a software organization, then it's 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 not a life or death situation, but still. It's still really, really important. Yeah, but there's still something to be gained. Yes, absolutely. If you'd like to know more about what I can do for your business, please head over to my website, happieratwork.ie, where I have more details on the services that I offer. I offer various different types of things for organizations like yours. I offer speaking, coaching, consulting, with a huge focus on data and analytics and how to use data to make better people decisions. I have a couple of ongoing public projects at the moment in relation to researching employee well-being 
first-time managers and I will be making those results publicly available as well. So if you would like to get access to that, head on over to my website. Um, I'd love to come back to this idea briefly on professional distance because that has certainly come up in um, in in a situation that I've been dealing with with a client recently and this idea of professional distance and maybe managers not understanding that concept by which I mean that they don't understand the power that they exert by asking someone to do something. They assume that people will question or that they will push back in some way. But if they haven't created that psychologically safe environment, then it's not likely that that their employee, their employee perceives this is coming from the CEO or this is coming from my boss. So it must be really, really important and I should do it. I should get on, get on with it. And as you mentioned, Ed, you know, they might think, oh, my boss is so busy and I can't ask them for help or I can't ask questions to get a better understanding of, of what it is I'm supposed to do. So um, I just wanted to to kind of raise that point. And then the idea of vulnerability and authenticity, that is certainly something that's come up multiple times on the podcast, especially recently. And I think it is critically important for this. Any thoughts around either of those those concepts and and how to how to manage that or or how to create a better environment where people can be vulnerable they can be a bit more authentic and ask the questions that they need to ask i just want to share one quick point about vulnerability and and mm. it's simply that you are vulnerable every day you go to work because again that it it it's it's because of that vuca idea um everything changes day to day yeah. And so to somehow believe that you're not vulnerable to the market changing or uh, some new p- bit of information that 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 changes your course of work that day, you are vulnerable. It's just a question of do, can you can you accept it and yeah. can you then uh, allow other people to see that you've accepted yeah. this this intrinsic vulnerability. And I would argue that that's you know that becomes more acute the higher up in the organization you go. Yeah. Right. Yeah, definitely. There, There is an addendum that I think is important to that point, and that is uh, not only the, the culture of management, but even deeper, the culture of work. We think of work as getting things done, decisions and accomplishments and outputs. We do not define work as communication and relationships. And yet, you can't really get anything done without conversation and without relationships. And uh, just to to leap to a completely different point, companies that, that really have mastered this point, the managers will tell you that they spend as much as 60 to 70% of their time on HR mentoring issues. 60 to 70% of their time (laughs) on building relationships, communicating, mentoring, and whatever. More about the H than the R, in other words. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, so many companies talk about best practice but I I don't think they've ever paid attention to that point as a best practice point. 
Yeah. I think most managers don't have a clue yeah. about how much time they should be spending building relationships, getting to know their people, communicating clearly. Now, the, the hooker in that is those are often feminine values. Hmm. And will we do better ultimately if more women get into management roles? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's that could be an entirely <laughs> different podcast and something I'm so passionate about is helping and supporting women to get to those leadership positions. I think it's it is really critical. And interestingly, Ed, I'm not sure I've ever heard anyone describe it in, in the way that you've described it. That 60 or 70 percent of, of the time needs to be spent on building relationships and that human aspect of 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 work. Um, you know, it is very much focused on getting things done. And even in recent conversations I've had with clients as well, it's um, if someone has to manage two people, three people, four people, five people, you kind of think about, well, what does that mean in terms of the meetings that I need to have or any any issues that might arise that kind of complicates things and it, it and it, you sort of see the time spent on dealing with people expanding, but from a very um from a negative perspective, let's say, whereas if we focus on building those relationships up front and what it means to get to know your employees on a human level, then hopefully later on, a lot of those um, issues that, that potentially could arise are done away with because you've you've invested the time in getting to know people, in, in using humble inquiry going in with a curious mind, going in with a, an ignorant view of, do you tell me about you? Because I'm I'm coming with no assumptions and, and building that psychological safety, building that, tr- that trust within the team. Can I give you an example that has struck me recently? <clears throat> in many, many organizations, the problems are siloism and the groups aren't talking to each other. Yeah. The answer to that is very simple. The CEO has to bring the heads of the silos into the room at one time and build a team. Yeah. And it doesn't even occur to most CEOs that instead of having the heads of the silos compete with each other for resources, that building a team out of the top of the organization is the answer. Yeah. And why don't they think of it? Because our management training never talks about how to build teams and the value of building teams at the top of the organization. Yeah. And one of the recent podcasts with Dan Norenberg, he spoke about exactly that. It's about building effective teams at that leadership level, because oftentimes leadership, when we talk about it, is very individual focused. And you put maybe one person at a time through a leadership program, or even if you put multiple people through a leadership program, it's very much focused on their individual leadership and their style of leadership and all of that kind of stuff. What, What Dan focuses on is identifying that. But not only that, and I'm not going to dwell too much on a past podcast, but he talks about the CEO often kind of almost washes his hands of it saying, my leadership team needs to change. I don't need to change. But actually, it's the entire leadership team that needs to be involved in that change. Right. Yeah. To Ed's point about siloism, you know, one of the sort of simplest 
um, ways to deal with that that I, I don't know how comfortable any company in the U.S. would be doing this. Some companies have, but it's generally because, because we've become so technical in what we do and so expert in our particular, you know, sort of uh, fields of work that um, it makes it hard at senior, uh, senior management level to just say, okay, everybody's rotating. You're taking over that division and, you know, you're, you're now taking this over this, you know, engineering group, everybody rotate. Um, Because all of a sudden you're walking each other's shoes yeah, and, you know, the insights and the, you know, you start being very vulnerable. You realize you, you, you are going to rely on humble inquiry. If all of a sudden you're, you're inheriting a, or you you know, your charge is now a different set of people and a completely different set of products and technologies. Yeah. It's a very hard thing to do. And the problem is we measure everything um, by, you know, sort of results per quarter. Yeah. And um, so you can't afford a hiccup of, um, you know, the, you know, the, the tough quarter because everybody rotated. So we just yeah. don't do it. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, Ed, Ed learned a long time ago at Siva Geigy, uh, you know, Swiss chemical company, um, that they had somehow figured out a way to, to be able to do it. And I, I think, I think it is, isn't it the case that in Germany, they, they with, with, um, um, sort of boards and governance, they have a sort of a rotation system that's okay. designed to do just this. It's to yeah, create yeah. this sort of cross divisional empathy that, you know, is going to uh, be beneficial, you know, yeah. down the road. Absolutely. You know, yeah. There's another thing that came up for me that I just want to talk about briefly. And that is that you were describing how we, it's really sort of a challenge to, to, to take time with our people. Mm. Um, Face to face, right? And and I feel like what one of the things that's happened in the last sort of twenty or thirty years of IT is that we've created these amazingly efficient systems to do everything, right? <laughs> we've got you know financial systems, we've got um, sales, you know, lead management and, and SFA systems. We've got HR stacks that have you know fifty different apps that you use. And so we've created a, uh, a, a very rich set of systems that allow, that can easily fill our day. And yeah. what was in a way supposed to be systems that would make us more efficient at getting these things done quicker has actually given us more to fill our day with. Yeah. And um, it's, you know, it's uh, again, the quote that I just can't get over right now is from a uh, obscure T.S. Eliot poem where he said, you know, that when we're facing challenges, we're dreaming of systems so perfect that no one will need to be good. And, uh-huh. and so we, we've done that. We've, we've created these perfect systems that automate our work lives. Amazingly, we've got Slack, we've got Workday, you know, all of this stuff that makes all of our jobs so easy, except we spend all of our time on these systems that we're no longer being good with our people. That's, that's, I don't know if that's true, yeah. but that's something I would worry about. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I suppose in, in building on the, 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 the way the conversation has been going for the last five or 10 minutes, this idea of 
defining communication and relationships as a key core part of the job. How do we do that? So if currently we're measuring things like output and productivity, how do we factor in that element of relationships and, and communication into, into how we define work? We write about it and we give a lot of airtime and visibility to executives who do it which will probably be <clears throat> more women than men. But the important point is, is to get the role model out there, that that is, in fact, how some of the great leaders work. They work through building relationships rather than through making decisions. Yeah. You've got to get that out there. Uh, I, for one, would, would gladly have Jacinda Ardern as our president. Just a, yeah. just a name drop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I was going to ask, <laughs> right. do you have any examples? But she is a wonderful example, I think. Um, she's know, a and, fantastic and maybe, maybe she's got a nice sandbox in New Zealand because it's just, you know, it's an island nation and it's not very big. But, you know, uh, at the same the time. Same, the same could be said for Ireland. Scale. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, could yeah. we scale? Could we scale up her uh, her role to somewhere like the United States? That would be, yeah. Well, I, I, I know, wonder. Probably not because of our broken political system. You know, the <laughs> president's not as important in some respects. But you know, there's still something to learn from. And yeah. you know, uh, the U.S. clearly wasn't ready for this. Um, you know, four and a half years ago, when when we did not elect Hillary Clinton. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and but you know this idea of feminine values we we um we were sort of we were uh, I, I would say somewhat consciously careful not to say that in the humble leadership book even though it was completely on our mind. Yeah. But I would say that Frederick Laloux and his reinventing organizations work um had the courage to say that. <laughs> Maybe we just we we didn't want to we didn't want to get into a uh, sort of a gender and, yeah. and sexual identity discussion that we're not qualified to have. <laughs> okay. But um, I, you know, there's something there, and mm. and um, I'd love for more qualified people to to uh, either you know violently disagree with us and tell us why, yeah, uh, or you know help us understand more what maybe we mean. Um, yeah. Because it's one of those you know it's. It's it's something in the air, but um, it's a little hard to kind of pin down. And then, of course, it makes a lot of people very uncomfortable. Exactly. Uh, this is it. Yeah. I mean, to me, uh, it is a gender stereotype, but I think it's it's commonly accepted that it's it is kind of a feminine approach, um, feminine value that you're you're bringing in in terms of relationship building. And um, without kind of veering completely away from the topic, the, like this idea of building relationships is and and in, a, in another book that I read recently with Sally Helgeson and Marshall Goldsmith, where they talk about how women rise and how women get in their own way. And one of them is the fact that they they're very good at building relationships but they're not good at leveraging those relationships. And so that's something that, that is critical as well in order to, to kind of rise up through the ranks in an organisation. They may not be any better at running groups than men. <clears throat> I think the missing ingredient <clears throat> that I see all the time is nobody knows how to run a group. Yeah. Our skills and group dynamics are totally missing everywhere. Mm. 
Yeah, one thing that, you know, we see a lot or, or historically have seen a lot of in Silicon Valley. And, and I, I want to believe that that some of the, the innovative, successful companies recognize this is you take brilliant technical experts and then you promote them into management and leadership roles. Yeah. Um, you know, that that mm. that may not make sense. Exactly. <laughs> and again, this is something that has come up. I had a, an entire leadership series on the podcast um, previously as well. And this topic of manager versus leader, but also like if someone is really a really great technical expert and especially in in a sales arena and they get promoted to be a leader of that team, then they're not really working to their strengths. And it's seen as this is the career path. This is how to earn more money is by becoming a manager. When actually the person is much more comfortable doing the day to day job, they don't really want to be a leader, but it it's it's seen as a wonderful career opportunity and more money and all of the other great things that, that go with it, you know, the recognition and all of that kind of stuff. So it's very tempting to accept that role as an individual. It's very tempting as an organization to promote someone who's really good at the job to being a leader of the team who carries out that job in in the in the hopes of and this again goes back to this idea of telling in the hopes of imparting the knowledge and the wisdom that they have in how they do things which may not necessarily translate to how the other employees carry out their um, their best work right right there is another possibility for for organizations which many do, and that is that we are so individualistic in in Western capitalism that what every group needs is a trained facilitator. I'm beginning to believe that what's expecting the CEO to build her own team, expecting a manager to know how to run groups may be totally unrealistic. Mm. But I know lots of organizations who won't have a meeting without a trained facilitator being there who does know about groups and who is enormously helpful. And I have that experience all the time. The thing I bring most to organizations is not the one-on-one coaching, but sitting in a group and helping that group not to lose its way. Yeah. I really, really like that. And really strangely and and maybe serendipitously, that is something I've been thinking of recently that because of the the group dynamics that I'm dealing with, that it would be great to learn those facilitation skills or to to hone the skills that I have and and to become more of an expert in that area, because I think it's really, really crucially important. Um, In in the interest of time here, is there anything else that you'd like to say in terms of maybe the steps towards getting to humble inquiry? Like we've, we've talked about the blockers, we've talked about some really, really interesting stuff around, uh, you know, group dynamics and relationships and things like that any anything else that you'd like to share from the book um can can i just uh take a first stab at that that um i don't know if we said this in the book explicitly but i I think it was implied that um uh well one of the forms of inquiry that we're advocating is is something we refer to as process inquiry which is having the sort of mindfulness and the courage to sort of stop and say, how are we doing? Is is this working? Are we, are, you know, 
we, 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 let's say we have a one hour meeting with a packed agenda and we just plow right into that agenda and we end up hitting a bunch of, you know, log jams and disagreements and, um, silent, you know, uh, you know, the, 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 the sort of silent objection, you know, the loudest voice in the room, all yeah. the sort of classic one hour meeting, um, dysfunctions, <laughs> um, do we have the license and the courage to say, wait a second, let's stop and just take a few minutes to talk about what's going on. Are we, are, is this going well? Are we asking um, each other the right questions or are we just, you know, arguing from, from our perches and not being willing to try to sort some of this out collectively asking those process inquiry questions and to Ed's point about facilitation, it may be something that just the uh, individual agents in that room um, do not have the detachment to say, all right, wait, I'm going to, I'm going to pull out. I'm going to mm. step back and ask the group if we're, yeah. how are we doing? Yeah. You know, yeah. We're, it's, we're it's so tough. focused on our OKRs and our to-do lists and, mm. and all of that, that to actually pull out and say, now I'm going to sort of take on a temporary facilitator role. Yeah, that may yeah. be a lot to ask, but it has to be something to consider. Yeah. And, and one way that we might suggest people do it, an experiment with, is say, th this is a one-hour meeting that has to happen in 50 minutes because yeah. we're going to spend 10 minutes doing what we've referred to as a plus delta, where we're going to, the plus is what worked and the delta is things we have to change. Okay. Whatever your your framework is, are you going to allow yourself somewhere between ten and twenty percent of the time to actually ask how how are we working together? How well are we doing? Um, th this is sort of a, a, a part of the reason we came up with this idea is that I was always very taken by this this notion at Google, and I don't know if they still do this, but an engineer's role is to do their work for four days and yeah. on the fifth day go find somebody else some other group some some other team that you need to go help go help another team for that fifth day do something that's productive for google but it's different than your day job yeah yeah if we took that same idea and said all right 20 percent of the time is going to be on helping each other not jamming through our agenda yeah, yeah. It goes back to this idea of being helpful versus being right as well and not being afraid to leave your own ego and your own agenda at the door and come in with an open mind and say, how can how can this work better and how can I be of better service and how can I be more helpful to my colleagues um, by challenging what's happening, you know, if it is going around in circles or if the, the group dynamic is not asking the right questions and, and, and things like that. Mm -hmm. yeah. Ed, do you have anything to add to that? Uh, just to reinforce the point that we've known forever that groups have a double agenda. Okay. They have a task to perform and they have to learn how to be a group. And we typically put all our energy into the task performance and give people no help or training in how to be a group. Yeah, that's such a good point.
and very well made, so simple. And yet, if we've known it for this long, why why aren't we doing it? Because the broader culture is so individualistic. Yeah. We don't really value group work mm. uh, as as a broader culture, and that's that's why we have no training and no programs. Do you have a program in Ireland on group dynamics? I bet you don't. I, not that I'm aware of. No, no. Or it's you know it's it's one course at a business school that only ten percent of the population takes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or it's it's understanding different communication styles, but but you're not really doing it as a team. You're doing it individualistic, right. individualistically, so that I can understand how to communicate better with Peter, and Peter can understand how to communicate better with Ed, and you know, and things like that. That it's not really done as as a group, and and maybe it is this idea of when when the group initially forms that the the core area that you need to focus on is how how are we going to to work as a team and and what does that look like and do we create a team charter for example um and and what what needs to be on that and and how do we agree when there's conflict in the team how does it get resolved and all of those great questions that probably people don't think about they just get on with it or uh, they have a moan to someone else behind their back or, or something like that which doesn't serve the overall purpose of the team either right yeah, they take a vote and then they create, you know, one side versus another side. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, rather than voting, it's, giving it's accountability. It's great. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just give accountability to people and say, this is your ultimate responsibility. You make the decision. You're welcome to get input from other people. So it feels like they've been involved and it's an informed decision. But ultimately, right. it's it's your area it's of, of, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Still a tell. <laughs> yeah. Um, anything else then to share be, just before we we kind of close up uh, round up the podcast? No, I'm very happy that we've covered a lot of ground. We have certainly covered a lot of ground, and I've so enjoyed the conversation. And um, there is one question that I ask everyone who comes on the podcast, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this. And that is, what makes you happier at work? Um, well, I, I mean, it's so for Ed and I. Um, I think what makes us happiest is when we sort of stimulate each other. We, yeah. we, um, but you know, this is an unusual situation. We we've known each other for a very, very long time. <laughs> and if, if, you know, if we don't have a depth of relationship, um, like generally, uh, uh, you know, fathers and sons do, and you know, some, some father and son relationships, are better than others. Ed's and mine is very good and very healthy. Yeah. Um, but it, it, there is something to that idea of um, uh, it's in the off moments that you you stimulate each other with a kind of a different idea or um, uh, that's why I think, you know, one of the things that's happened in the, in the, in the pandemic with everybody sort of um, you know, screening into each other rather yeah. than actually bumping into each other in the hall is, you know, have we been able to do that? Have we been, been able to, to sort of find those, um, those extra layers, those extra ideas that come out of contemporaneous human relationship? Yeah. We know that that happens when we're bumping into somebody at, you know, in the kitchen or in the hall at work. 
Um, I hope that we're figured out ways over Zoom and whatever your video system is to, to have the time to do that as well. I fear that what's happened is that Zoom has just made us even more agenda bound. Um, yeah. So we'll, we'll see. You know, I don't know what's happening in Ireland. There's lots of talk about the next quarter or two companies are going to start bringing people back to work. Mm. Because there is that sense that you need to create those moments for people to stimulate each other. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. that don't have to do with the job. They don't have to yeah. do with certainty. They have to do with clarity. <laughs> yeah. 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 The social element of it. And I yeah. think, um, yeah, so we're talking, I think, at this stage, September, when people will start going back to offices, but it won't be mm-hmm. full. It'll be a hybrid type of approach. And I mean, that's... Yeah. Which that's might be very good. That might yeah. actually be sort of a, a real step forward for all of us. Definitely, um, definitely. Yeah. And if people want to reach out, if they want to get in touch, if they want to find out where the book is available, now's the opportunity to to tell them. Um, yeah, well, it's it's certainly available on on the um, sort of all of the the conventional, um, you know, uh, physical book and ebook platforms. Um, uh, and then our our site ocli.org organizational culture and leadership institute ocli.org um, just has a little bit more about us and some of our other books and and um, other things that we're thinking about and working on wonderful brilliant thank you so much for your time today it was an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast likewise great great conversation great questions uh, yeah Moving the ball forward. This is Hopefully. it. <laughs> that podcast was a little bit longer than what I normally have, but I really did not want to stop that conversation. And I hope you enjoyed it as much as I had having it. There is so much to cover within that. And before I move on to do a synopsis of some of the key points that were made, I just wanted to remind you to get over to LinkedIn to join in the conversation, to add your own thoughts, your own experiences of what both Peter and Ed spoke about on the podcast today. So the first kind of key point was this shift from telling to asking. So normally manager's role or leader's role is seen as telling people what to do, but approaching things with more of an open and curious mind and asking. And and this, the, the kind of crucial differential here is asking questions to which you don't know the answer. So it's not about asking to try and guide or lead someone in a certain direction. It's going in with that open mind of curiosity and ignorance. We spoke also about the importance of groups and learning as a group, how to adapt, how to have a better market fit. And I know certainly this is something that has come up again and again on the podcast, especially in recent months. So it's really intrigued to hear this coming from Peter and Ed as well. Um, We spoke about culture and giving people a chance to actually speak up and the courage to speak up and a reward system that operates in such a way that that rewards people for actually speaking up and creating that sense of psychological safety at work. We spoke about the importance of relationships and being intentional about the kinds of relationships that you want to have at work. Also being aware of the professional distance that exists, the different levels of relationships. So the transactional handing off roles, jobs, descriptions, you work for 
maybe for compliance. Um, and it's really about sticking to the rules at this level. Level two then is the whole person to whole person. So essentially treating people like humans, using humble, humbly inquiring, humbly sharing and tell each other what's really going on. It's open, trusting, adaptive, resilient, influences the culture. The social culture is adaptive and innovative as well. Coming back then to this idea of the professional distance, being aware of the professional distances that exist and maybe trying to reduce the, the distance that exists, for example, between a leader and a subordinate. And just being aware that simply by having the title leader sets you apart from other people. The culture of work up to now tends to have been very much focused on getting things done. And again, this is such an enlightening piece of what we spoke about was that oftentimes it's not defined as communication and relationships when actually 60 to 70 percent of work hinges on building effective relationships at work. And it's really important then to have role models who are doing it and to give airtime to the executives who are actually doing it. The issue with this oftentimes is that the problems exist in silos and the CEO has neglected to actually build a team around him. And again, reiterating the importance of group dynamics and teamwork. We spoke also about this idea of process inquiry, and that's having the mindfulness and the courage to stop and take a few minutes and question, is it going well? Are we asking the right questions in this meeting, in this group, in this project? The entire thread throughout the conversation was about this idea of group dynamics, about building relationships at work and the importance of asking with an open mind rather than telling people what to do. And it was mentioned as well that these are often feminine values that you find at work and that one of the areas in order to solve this will be encouraging more women or empowering more women to reach those more senior positions in the workplace. And you certainly won't get any arguments from me about that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Happier at Work podcast. I'm delighted to have you here. If you enjoyed this podcast, I'd love if you could rate or review the podcast or share it with a friend. You'll find me on the website happieratwork.ie.